Today, since this episode is emerging on Valentine's Day, let's talk about love. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. There is a famous quotation, and by famous, I just mean I've at least heard of it, (laughs) at some point, uh, where uh, C.H. Spurgeon said something similar to this. If you cut John Bunyan, you know, the Christian author, if you cut John Bunyan, he'd bleed scripture. That quotation has emerged in my life in a slightly different form. Uh, meaning I've learned uh, to use that expression in certain ways, and I've heard others use it, uh, a parallel expression in certain ways. For instance, uh, if you, I've heard this, and I have repeated it, uh, but I changed it from cutting, and I've heard other people change it from cutting to scratching, you know, so if you scratch a politician, he bleeds deception. Um, That's one I favor, and it seems accurate. But anyway, whatever, you get the idea. Or I've said this, and I've heard others convey the same idea, but it is if you scratch a theologian, he bleeds philosophy. Uh, You get the idea of it. There's something inside a person that's their real core, and if you can get through the skin of that person, you would understand this about them, that this is what's in their heart of hearts. This is what's deep down inside of them. And, to, you know, this, this topic today, love, is so integral to Christianity that I think there's a way we can understand love that we need to grasp, that we need to have, if we want to have any understanding of what it really means to be a follower of Christ, to walk after him, that if you were to look anywhere deeper, into Christianity in any direction, you would always and ultimately find this topic at its core, love at its core. So, you know, there are several steps I want to take here, one of which is just to understand how important the topic is, the topic of love is in Christianity. And then the other part sort of to grasp both negatively and affirmatively, because that's very often how love is talked about. In uh, its absence or the things that are opposed to it, we recognize it, but then also in the things that are integral to it, that are a part of it, we understand it as well. And then finally, to grasp it in light of this one great commandment, obviously, that uh, Jesus pulls out. Uh, that has everything to do with what love is. And so that's it. So starting with how important it is, there is what Jesus himself says about it, as I was just alluding to. In Matthew 22 is where I'll take this from uh, this time. The Pharisee, the lawyer, comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 
uh, which is, especially for a lawyer, a way of saying, what's the most important thing? What's the greatest topic of all? And Jesus' answer was to say to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is the answer to the great commandment. You shall love the question of the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And he goes on to say, a second is like it. It's important that he doesn't say, and just under that, he doesn't say that. There is a second commandment that is of the same nature as the first commandment. Now, he does say the first one first, and he says the second one second, so I'm not saying there's not some sense of priority here, but it doesn't seem to be a priority where you can separate the two and say, well, this one's super, super important, and this one is only super important. It's not like that. They are alike, and the way he describes them in the end of the statement is also going to make them alike. So without choosing one above the other, we come to the second commandment that's part of the great commandment. The second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, I mean, we all know this expression, love God, love others. Love God, love your neighbor. That statement then leads Jesus to say in verse 40 of Matthew 22, on these two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law, and the prophets. Those two commandments are not bunched together in the Old Testament. Uh, you don't find them in exactly the same place, and we're all familiar with it, but I'll, I'll come back to that later on. But it is important that Jesus is the one who puts them together and says, if you don't understand these two things together, then you don't understand the most important thing about what God expects of you, about what your life is intended to be about, about the commandments that God gives. Whatever form you want to put on it, the most important thing is that we love God and that we love others. Jesus makes it important in the book of John as well. I just chose out Matthew's book. We could have done it from Luke or the other synoptics. The point is, in John, a completely different kind of gospel, he says it this way, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. It's not like there's no commandment in the Old Testament that people love one another. And yet he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. So why on earth is this a new commandment? Well, you can say it's because it's the time, this is now when he's saying it to them from him. So I'm giving this to you as a new commandment from me. Or you can say there's something about the way Jesus gives the commandment that makes it distinctive, and it's following his pattern that makes it distinctive. That may be why it's a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, and that's why, and I would take it that second way, because of what he says now, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. He says this commandment, that we love one another the way he loved us, which is what I think makes it distinctive. His demonstration is the perfect demonstration of love. But 
that being made distinctive, what he says about the commandment that you love one another is this. It's in this that all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. This makes love the sine qua non of Christianity. It is the center point of Christianity. It's not an ancillary. It's not something that can be combined with other things, and then and only then is it appropriate. Well, it's oh, it's great that you love, but you better have the truth also. Jesus doesn't qualify it at all. This is the thing that makes you my disciples. This is the because it's the great commandment, and this is the thing by which anyone else would finally understand that you are my disciples. And by giving you this commandment, I'm saying to you it's new because my demonstration of it is the thing that will allow you finally to do what I expected when I created you. In James, he says it this way. So we move from the Gospels to an epistle, one of the first books written in the New Testament. So, I mean, this is this is as old as you can get, as foundational to Christianity as you can get in James. And he's definitely just commenting on the Gospels as he's going through his epistle to the early church. So early, it's just, he just he's just writing it to the Jewish believers, right? So if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, this is if you fulfill the prestigious law, the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing well. This is, this is James after he has said, you know, if you understand pure religion and undefiled religion, then you would live this way. This is James saying, let God's work in you be perfect. Don't look in the mirror and then walk away from it. We want a law that brings genuine liberty. What do you arrive at? You arrive at James saying, and in a, in a specific case where they weren't doing this well, because of how they were treating the wealthy in contrast to how they were treating the poor. Different different story for a different day. He says, if you're going to fulfill the, the royal law, according to the scripture, is it the law of the king, according to the scripture, this is the, the commandment that Christ has given you as our king. This is the commandment that God has given us as our ultimate monarch. The kingdom of God has this law. Or is it this law is royal compared with all the other laws? Regardless, if you want to fulfill that greatest law, it is loving your neighbor as yourself. And if you do that, he says, no exceptions. This is without any qualification. If you do that one thing, you are doing well. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Man, I wish this weren't so complicated. Hey, not super complicated. Love your neighbor as yourself. God will say, you have done well. That's the whole thing. That, that's a... That's a remarkable statement about how important this concept is. If you want to understand how important love is from Paul, so we've gotten it from the Gospels, from a commentary on the Gospels in the Epistle of James. If you just want to take it from Paul, somebody completely distinct from the way we think of the Gospels, I think Luke's Gospel is highly reflective of Paul and his theology, but whatever. The point here is, and other people agree with that, the point is, if you take Paul specifically, then all of us know where to go. Every wedding we go to, somebody quotes something from this, right? So we all get it. 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says it this way. This is how important the concept of love is. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, and he's not mocking that, 
He's not speaking of that negatively. He's naming the highest things he can name of to create these contrasts with the importance of having love. It's sort of like Jesus saying, if you are not more perfect than the Pharisees, then you're not really my follower. You know, this is what you're commanded to be in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not picking the Pharisees because there's something wrong with them. He's picking the Pharisees because they're the prime example of righteousness in in Jewish culture at that time. So unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the, of the Pharisees, then you cannot enter my kingdom. You cannot be my follower. That's, these ideas are to pull on the strength of that contrast. So when he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, he's not mocking something. He's saying, if I have the gift from God to speak in all the languages that people have, and to speak with the authority and clarity of God's own messengers, the angels. But I don't have love. Then I might as well just be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Meaning, what, what are words even worth if they're not communicating love? I'm, I, the importance of that statement can't be overstated. I cannot raise it high enough. He has just said the entirety of human language is useless because language is made distinctive by the fact that it's not just clanging noise. It's not just animals wailing. It's words with meaning and weight and significance and conveying emotion and all of these other things. And he says the only thing that sets language apart from useless noise is love. That's the only thing. Yeah, I'm sorry I'm pausing so much on this, but you know, there's a moment where you have to look at your own soul and say, is that how I've been using language? Is that what's been flowing from my mouth? Because that's what God created it for. He created your mouth and tongue. He created your ability to speak with language so that love would come out of it. Is that what comes out of our mouths? If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, just to, again, emphasize how important Paul makes this concept of love in his discussions. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have, I mean, these, this is what's important. I have prophetic powers, right? And it is incredibly important. How important is it that somebody is able to say, let me speak to you on God's behalf? Men have done that throughout history. Women have done that throughout history. And the significance of it is vast. And he says, even if I'm able to do that, if I have understanding of all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and I have all the faith so that I can, as Jesus described it, look at a mountain and remove it. So I have perfect faith and prophecy and understanding, and I get the mysteries and the knowledge of Scripture, but I do not have love. Then I am nothing, nothing, not well, you know, I'm the other side of Christianity. I'm the truth side. I'm the judgment side. I'm the strong side. No, you're nothing. Nothing. There's love, and then there's nothing. 
That's, Paul is not ignorant of logic. He uses extremely tight Greek forms of logic in his arguments. And he means what he's saying here. If we do not arrive at love, if that's not what we're conveying, then it's not good enough. So I would be nothing. Verse 3, he says, I'm in 1 Corinthians 13, just for a moment. If I give away all that I have. So here's just performance. If I give away all that I have, which can be a huge gift. If I deliver up my body to be burned, and some of these things are exactly what he did. But I have not love. Then I gain nothing. You know, what is a man profited if he gains the whole world? and loses his own soul. That's Jesus' words to his disciples when he's saying, this is what it means for you to be my disciple. You can't can't have the world also. What would it profit you? If you gain the whole world, lose your own soul. Here, Paul is saying, if I don't gain love, then I gain nothing. Everything else is me just obtaining the things of this world, me just obtaining the things that I thought were important, and none of them brought me to the point where my soul's meaning was fulfilled because that is only in love. If I gave all away and I delivered up my body to be burned, but I have not love, then I gain nothing. So he goes on into the chapter to say, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, you say, well, so there are really three things that are important, but do you hear what he says next? Of course you do. All three of these, faith, what could be more important than faith? Hmm. There's an answer. Hope. Oh, if you have hope, you have nothing. No, it doesn't say that. Faith, hope, and love abide, all three. But the greatest of these is love. That's how important this topic is. So, you know, at this point, we have to figure out, first, what on earth is this thing? You know, what is love when we're talking about it? And a lot of what we understand about what love is is from what it is not. That's, you know, the most most of us get to or a lot of us get to in understanding what love is. So, you know, let me, let me just say on one side, negatively, love isn't simply avoiding the things we know are incompatible with it. Abusing someone is obviously incompatible with loving them. But not abusing someone doesn't mean that you're expressing love to them. That's not enough. There's got to be more than that. You get the idea? So in the concepts where we, there are plenty of things that are incompatible with love, where you could use those to say, well, you're, you're not acting in love. And that's part of what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, if we're going to talk about love, we have to talk about 1 Corinthians 13, right? I mean, it's the chapter that just dwells on it and sits on it for a while. And in that chapter, part of what he says is, man, it doesn't do this stuff. So we need to know those things because, you know, in in the same way you use a thermostat to sort of check the temperature in a room, you can look at it and say, well, you know, the thermostat says you're boasting and you're being envious or whatever it is. And you can say, therefore, you're not loving. And you could say, oh, okay, well, I'll stop doing that. And that won't be enough. But at least you'll know when something is wrong, right? So it's important to know these things that it's not so that we can understand it, but it's not sufficient to know these things that are not the case about it. 
on the affirmative side, it is love. So we say positive things about love also. Love produces some things, right? So love makes us experience some things, and love causes us to do some things. But love is not simply what it produces, nor is it the sum of all of the things it produces. That would be, my, my philosopher's going to come out for a moment. You're going to scratch a theologian here and find a philosopher. The, that would be reductionist, uh, meaning instead of thinking love is a real thing, for instance, a, a genuine naturalist like a, a materialist or a naturalist would say, there's no such thing as love. There's just a desire to reproduce and to perpetuate your own genetic line in the species as a result of evolution. I don't, I don't even care about all those theories and all that stuff. I don't, I don't care what we, you know, believe it, don't believe it, whatever. Whatever you think about the theories, doesn't matter. The statement, love isn't a real thing. Love is just sort of the sum of behaviors and the emotions, the, uh, which are not a real thing either. They're just, you know, sort of the sum of all of the metabolic changes and hormonal changes that go on inside of us that make us say, well, I've got to go have a baby with somebody. And so, oh, I love you. But what I mean is have a baby. That's not the same thing as what love would actually be if it's a thing. Those who are on the other side of this discussion, by the way, about, I'm not going to stay here long. I just need to be here for a minute, though. Those who are on the opposite side of this discussion, like I'm criticizing reductionism. I'm criticizing the idea that you would reduce the concept of love to some, you know, list of behaviors or sensations or something like that. I don't think that's sufficient to comprehend what love actually is. I think love is a thing. By saying that, if a skeptic heard me say that, what they would say is, well, you're just reifying love. You're acting as if it's a real thing when it's not. That would be the discussion, the argument that people have. As a believer, it's a no-brainer. I think love is a real thing, and I think God expects us to love. And I think the understanding of what love is, sort of circling around and grasping what it is as we note the things that are outside the fence where love exists, and we observe the things that are inside the fence where love exists, we eventually notice not just that the things love produces exist, but there is a thing there itself, love. There's not, there's not just a bunch of, I don't know how, I, this metaphor is ugly. I'm just, if you'll stick with me for a second though, I'll be very brief with it. There are not, there are not just a bunch of piles around the pasture. There are also cattle. There's evidence that there are cattle, but then there are cattle. I think love is a real thing, and yeah, it produces real things. You don't, don't carry the metaphor forward. I'm just saying. That's, it produces real things, and love itself is a thing. That's what we want to find. So, But first of all, we want to understand what love is by the things that are not it. Some of them are negative. Some of them are positive, but none of them are the whole of love. They are a thing unto themselves. So, as Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 13, in between the two verses we were just talking about, he says, love is patient and kind. So, you know, here, here are positive, affirmative aspects about love. Love is patient and kind. In fact, I'll just give you the positive ones right now. I'm just going to skip around as I'm reading it. So, love is patient and love is kind. I can be patient with someone and not experience love. I'm just being patient with them. I can also love someone, and because of that, be patient with them. But my patience with them is not the same as my love for them. 
Those are two different things. They are related, but they're not the same thing. So you understand what I mean when I'm saying these are positive uh, attributes, uh, behaviors, uh, emotions, whatever they are. They're all different things. But these are positive things that exist and that are important, but they're not love. They do help us understand what love is, though. Love is patient. Love is kind. These are, again, just the affirmative things. Down in verse 6, if you happen to be looking at 1 Corinthians 13 while I'm saying this, you'll notice in verse 6 he picks it up again with, love rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices with the truth. Love puts up with everything, has faith through everything, hopes despite everything, outlasts everything. You know, when I hear that last part, uh, love outlasts everything, I'm always drawn back, and I won't go into these details, but I'm always drawn back to the Song of Solomon. When, when the Song of Solomon ends, it has this, fra- this one particular phrase that always struck me as remarkably powerful. Love is strong as death. And it, it almost sounds insulting, right? Like, uh, oh, love's just as big as death. And that's like, oh, who wants to be compared to death, right? But the point of death is that it's the end of things. The point of death is that it defeats everyone. It conquers everyone. But when death has done its full work, the whole point of that phrase in the Song of Solomon, when death has done its full work, love is still standing there, looking at it and saying, you can take everything else to the grave but I am just as strong as you are. Now, as a believer saying that, as a person who follows Christ, you can imagine how victorious that statement is in the resurrection. So anyway, you get the idea. So love is these positive, it produces these positive things. It, it produces a person who rejoices with the truth, a person who puts up with everything and, and is still loving it, it produces in a person the ability to have a faith that's not shaken no matter how dreadful things become, to produce a hope in a person despite every reason to give up hope. You know, people describe a mother's love that way, that there's hope even when no one else would offer hope, that it outlasts everything. That's the point of all of that communication. Those are the things that characterize someone who loves. The things that are the opposite of that in the middle of this passage uh, from the last half of verse 4 up through the beginning of verse 6 are that love does not envy or boast. When you find someone who is jealous of the other person, then you know something's missing there. Something's wrong because love doesn't produce that. Love isn't arrogant or rude. I'm uncomfortable with that language, so I'm just going to move on. (laughs) love doesn't insist on its own way. No, we've got to do, no, this is what's important. It's about me. Love does not insist on its own way. And love isn't, again, I'm getting uncomfortable, irritable. mm, Love isn't irritable. I got to work on that one. Or resentful. And I think that one strikes me as profoundly true observing someone who is genuinely loving, and I mean in the moment, they love someone, they don't resent 
that other person ever. It's just not going to happen. And even if resentment were to rise, you know, that seed of our fallen nature somehow sprouting up out of the ground and getting its tentacles going upwards, it's immediately withering and falling back into the ground because love just isn't an environment where resentment would survive. And so uh, love put, so so on the positive side instead, it's not rejoicing in some kind of wrongdoing. Love is rejoicing with the truth. And it is celebrating that and so on. So you get the idea. If you look at the characteristics that go with love, you can say genuinely, yeah, that, that is something I, that's something I recognize in a person that loves you're going to find patience and kindness and truth and a willingness to put up with everything and still have faith and hope and still be there when everything else has been worn down. And so that's what he comes to in verse 8 when he says love never ends. He's transitioning to make a statement about love more abstractly and less in the way we see it played out in relationships, right? So love just never ends in verse 8. And so he gives the contrast to that. You know, prophecies, they pass away. Tongues, they cease. And he's not condemning those practices. He's not creating some kind of soteriology or eschatology or any pneumatology where we would say, well, you know, the role of the Spirit's changed. And so I know I've been a cessationist for a long time. I know how people use this passage. That's not his point. His point isn't, well, the gifts only existed during this limited time. He's contrasting the the importance of love with other things that are incredibly important to believers and making the point that love is the one that always has to supersede everything else. And that's apparent in the fact that when you go back to the beginning, God loved, and when you go all the way to the end, God will love. And that's what he expects from us from the beginning to the end. So love never ends. Prophecies of incredible importance, they pass away. You know, it's already been done. It's already gone. Or it's no, you know, when I'm in heaven, I'm not going to need a prophecy. And by heaven, I just mean eternity, however you want to define that. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, and I, it doesn't matter whether you think he's talking about the use of tongues in worship services or if you think he's talking about human languages. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And that's the point. It's not like we're ever going to come to a point where we say, well, you know, once the scriptures were complete, we didn't need to know anything anymore. I mean, you know, so just reasonably, that's not the debate being had here. I, on either side, you fall. Either way, whether you're a cessationist or not. And if you don't know what I mean by that, don't worry about it. It's not important. The point here is different from that. None of these things are comparable to the eternally valuable nature of love. Prophecy, tongues, knowledge, they pass away. Love never ends. We know in part. We prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, and that's the love that God has for us. The partial passes away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish things. People extract those two verses 
and make it be about everything you can imagine. Scripture is the mature thing, or Christ's return is the mature thing. The eschaton is the mature thing. But just read it in its context. Verse 8, love never ends. So when he says, when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. What are the childish ways? Oh, I don't know, maybe envying and boasting and arrogance and rudeness and insisting on your own way and being irritable and resentful and celebrating when something's done wrong for your benefit. And what would be the becoming a man? What would those characteristics be like? Well, the ones that went with love, because what does he say next? So as we're reading it, when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now we see in a mirror dimly. This part's going to become really important as we look at it in comparison, for instance, in 1 John later. But it's, you know, when he's saying, I look in a mirror dimly, I don't see clearly, I don't see directly the perfect expression of this in God. I see it lived out only in me, and that's a dim reflection. It's not a perfect reflection. So now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully even as I have been known fully. So in all of this, he's making the point that love is the thing that would be fully matured in us after everything else. Uh, By the way, exactly the same point uh, Paul makes in Ephesians 5, as we're trying to come to understand love by what it's not. And again, I don't just mean by the things that are against it. I mean by the things that are not it. The things that are not it include things it excludes, like you're never envious, and it includes things that it produces, like being patient and kind and so on. Those things are not love. They are the products of love. But we can understand love better if we understand the things that are inside and outside the fence where love exists. So talking about that, Paul does the same thing in Ephesians 5 when he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. So this is, you know, this is the point he's making. We're looking through a mirror dimly. We're only seeing it reflected in us. Well, what we want to do is imitate God. We want to love the way he loves. We want to be his children. That's what he means by saying we're his children. So therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. This is, how do you imitate God? By, by walking in love. And how do you know what that looks like? Christ loved us, and he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That was the perfect image of it. In contrast to that, what do you have? Sexual immorality in verse 3. But sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And by the way, the words here are so important, the not being named among you. And the contrast that's given, uh, to, to, or the addition to these things that's given, in contrast to what love would be, which is this, listen, listen how he says it, those things, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, must not be named among you as is proper among the saints, so don't let there be any filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place. The reason he's choosing the way we speak about these things as the priority is because in contrast, what we ought to be speaking is thanksgiving. Well, what would make thanksgiving so central to being a person who loves the way Christ loved? Well, in all of those things, in sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness, 
you know, what's built into them is not just some purity code. It's not just some, you know, sense of what it means to be a Puritan in our society. It's not that. What it means is, are you simply taking things from other people? Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, that's why covetousness is lumped together with those two things. You're just taking things from other people. You're using other people for your own sake, and you're not expressing the purity of what it is to love the way God loved, which is not just lowering the concept of love to this consumption of other people, to this usage of other people, or this worship of something other than God himself, which is why he goes on to say, for you can be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, and then he puts it in parentheses and says it, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and of God. The point of all of this is Paul saying, you, you know what love is supposed to be because it's not something that is self-serving. It's not something that's exalting you or anything else over what God has demonstrated through his son in the first verse of Ephesians 5 when he started saying this, who gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's what we are supposed to be like. Or, if you wanted to understand it in terms of what it would look like, that is, the product it would have, not based on what love itself is, but on, on how it presents itself, on the things that it produces, you could take it from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray. This one's going to invite us to finally grasp what love does have to be. And it's going to go all the way through 1 John to make the same point. Now, we're not going to arrive at the conclusion, and obviously by the time, we're not going to get there today, but we will get to one conclusion that I really want you to hear. So you've heard, he says, that it was said, you love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Ah, wait a minute, not hating. Instead of hating, I'm praying. So the contrast with hate, obviously he wants me to love, not hate. So the contrast with hate should be love. What he uses to describe the contrast with hate are these things that love produces in us. And what does it produce? Praying, praying for those who persecute you so that you can be the sons of your father who's in heaven. Because he, and then look what he does, makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. God blesses the evil and the good. He loves his enemies. That's what he's saying. The, the giving them blessings is not the love but it's something the love does. Just like you praying for someone is not you loving them, but it is you doing something for them because you love them. You serve them. And so God serves people who are his enemies when he causes the sun to rise on them or sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what, you know, what, what's the benefit in that? Tax collectors. And again, we, the, the phrase, you know, we, we misunderstand how ugh, negatively thought of the tax collectors were. So I replace it with a word that sort of strikes the same tenor in our tones. 
in our in our language. Uh, don't even Nazis do that. You know, they 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 love the people who love them. If you greet, so here's the other concept. So there's praying and blessing, making the sunrise and sending rain, and now it's just greeting. If you greet only your brothers, what what more are you doing than others do? Even Gentiles do that. You therefore must be perfect, complete. Your love has to be like your father's love. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so one of the ways we understand uh, what it means to love someone is by the stuff it produces, which is not love, but it is something that evidences that there's love. And on the positive side, that means praying and blessing, doing things for other people, serving them, and greeting them, actually just being kind in our reception of people. Those are part of the things that reveal that we actually might have love for them because love produces those kinds of things. But especially and most clearly, the negative thing that's not a product of love and that is contrary in its nature and presence to what love would be is the one John mentions in 1 John 4, and it's about fear. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected, completed. No way he's not referring back to Jesus telling us it needs to be perfect. We need to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. This is, this is by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Verse 18, here's the part in 1 John 4 where he says, "This is you would not find this in love. This would not be present. There is no fear in love. That doesn't mean that when you genuinely love another person, you might not experience fear regarding that person. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that would never happen. It does mean that fear is not coming from your love. That fear is not a product of the loving relationship that you have. There's something out of place there, and there's something in you that's not love in that relationship if there's fear. This is what he says. There is no fear in love, but completed love, perfect love, mature love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears, therefore, is still living in a place where they think punishment is the thing that might come. There is a lack of love's maturity when that's what you're thinking. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever, I'm reading from 1 John still, fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been completed, not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And so what, I, what I'll do today, and this is obviously going to be two episodes, for, for the second episode, I'll just ask you this question, and I'll put it this way. Why is overcoming fear so essential to love? Why is that the center point? Why is overcoming fear essential? It's not, it's not like, oh, well, it should eliminate your fear, I think. Uh, you know, it's, it is, if you, if you fear then you're not experiencing love. There is no fear in love. Why is overcoming fear so essential to love? And then what we'll do next time 
is finish out the actual thing that Jesus said, which is love the Lord your God and then love your neighbor as yourself to address uh, actively, positively what love is, not just by what it's not, but by what we are told it actually is. And, and there is a way we can just understand commonsensically what love itself is, how we experience this thing that we call love and what it means. And then there's the very positive sense of what it means for us to say it with meaning, that we love God the way he loves us and that we love our neighbors the way he commands us to love our neighbors. And I think if we understand how he loves us, we'll understand all of that. That's what we'll cover next time. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at berrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.